Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. I think for Chicago government to operate in the ways that our residents need and deserve, you need a city council to act as an empowered, independent, and energized legislative body. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is a man who I believe is destined to become a leader in a Chicago City Council in transition, if not a candidate for mayor of Chicago someday. Alderman Matt Martin of the 47th Ward, which includes parts of North Center, Lincoln Square, Lakeview, and Uptown. Thanks so much for joining us, Matt. Pleasure to be here, Frank. I want to get into what's going on in the city council, but first let's talk a little bit about you and your very interesting and varied background. You were born in Arizona. What was that like? And tell us a little bit about your family and how you came from Arizona to Chicago. Yeah, I had um, a a really interesting upbringing, I have to say. Um, I was raised by my mom, um, Kathleen, who comes from a very big Irish Catholic family from um, uh, the Bay Area. She met my dad, who's from West Africa, uh, Niger, a country right above Nigeria, when the two of them were working for my mom and then studying for my dad at the University of Arizona. Um, A mutual friend put them in touch because my mom had done Peace Corps in Niger. And that person rightly thought they're going to hit it off. You got one person who did Peace Corps in Niger for two years, a person from Niger, born and raised there, who came um, to get a terrific education. So they fell in love quickly. They had me. And then when my dad finished up his studies, he went back to Niger. The plan was for my mom and I to follow him once I was old enough to travel, because I think I was just... um, Uh, a month or two old at that time, and then sadly had radio silence for a number of months. And after a while, it became clear to my mom that she was going to be parenting solo. And she, at the time, was working as a secretary and did that sort of work for most of her career. So uh, it was, we had a lot of challenges, especially financial challenges. Um, But uh, I grew up in such a loving household and a loving community where I had friends and neighbors and teachers who at so many critical junctures invested in me, looked out for me. And that's a big reason why I came out to Chicago. I had uh, a small business owner who on my 16th birthday said, come work for me. So I was able to save up some money at the time I was uh, an aspiring musician. And I used that money to get a saxophone. I used the saxophone to get a scholarship to come out to Northwestern. And that's what brought me out to Chicago. So wait, let's go back a little bit. Did you ever see your dad again? 
I saw him um, once for an extended period of time. So he was finishing up his master's degree um, and then had left to go back to Niger, came back in middle school to do his PhD. And so I saw him uh, maybe once or twice a month for a few years. Um, wasn't especially close at that time, but one of the things he did instill in me was a real uh, faith in government and an understanding that without government operating effectively and with the best interests of residents in mind that people were going to continue to struggle because his his country got colonial independence from France um, in the latter parts of the 20th century. And he was part of a first or second wave of folks who came to the U.S. The idea being you're going to get this terrific education, bring it back to your country, build up that new civil society independently. Um, and so I remember like when I would stay with him, including overnight, like on Saturday mornings, we weren't watching cartoons. We were watching like news and in evenings, it wasn't fun stuff. It was the Jim McNair news hour. And I was young and I, I could tell that this was really important to him. And while we aren't especially close right now, we do keep in touch. I, I do have a real appreciation for his passion around government. And I think that has had an impact on my life. Did you ever say to him, how could you leave without saying goodbye? Or why did you leave mom and me or anything like that? Was there anger at all? You know, we've talked about it. He hasn't given an answer that I find satisfying. Um, and I don't really know, to be honest. Um, at the time, so my mom, like I mentioned, white Irish Catholic, my dad is black, and I can't speak to what um, the cultural norms and expectations were in Niger um, in, in the 80s. Um, I know we have, and continue to in a lot of ways, have our challenges around race, and I can't imagine that it would be any different there. That might have played a role. Um, I'm not sure, but at the end of the day, it's, it's something where it that's a defining part of my life. It's not the only part of my life, of course. And I just keep that in mind as I have two young kids, including uh, my, my first was a son. And that was a really wonderful experience for me when he was born. And as he's continued to grow and as I figured out how to be the best parent I can, um, a lot of that was informed, of course, by the terrific job my mom did and continues to do and also informed by what I wish my dad had done and wasn't able to, and um, I'm doing my best. You got your undergrad from my alma mater, Northwestern, where you got this music scholarship, majored in jazz studies and political science. What an interesting combination. You played yeah. the sax. Why did you choose politics over jazz, and do you still play? Um, so I... I loved the, I, I've always been someone who likes to juggle a bunch of things at the same time. And so when I had the opportunity to go to Northwestern to do a double degree program, I jumped in it. That was, it was the first acceptance letter I got and really the only one that I needed to get. Um, when I was winding down time in Northwestern, I did have to make that decision of once I graduate, which course of study or work am I going to pursue? And one of my really, really terrific mentors, a, a great jazz drummer named um, Joel Spencer said, Matt, like 
this is a really challenging environment you're getting into jazz and music generally. And in my experience, Matt, the, the folks who are happiest and most successful are the people who can't imagine themselves doing anything else. Um, and so I, I, I really took that to heart, gave it a lot of thought and said, I can imagine myself doing a lot of things. And I spoke with some of my former classmates who are a few years older, breaking onto the jazz scene. And I just didn't think that was the right fit for me. Um, but I did, as you mentioned, I had a political science degree. I was actually, not coincidentally, uh, 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 focused on sub-Saharan African politics and, and policy. So I actually, by the time I was finishing up undergrad, needed to figure out, do I want to pursue, say, a PhD program or do I want to go more of a law route? And so I, I decided to take off a, a few years from school, worked at a law firm, worked on some campaigns and decided that law would be the way to go. But in working on races during that pivotal 2008 cycle, um, decided that actually I didn't want to focus as much on uh, global issues, African issues, and actually wanted to focus more on local issues. And that was uh, uh, really defining for me as I went to Harvard for law school and then came back and hipped on the work that I've done for the last number of years. Is the sack still in the basement or do you play? I so I have three saxophones. Actually, I was pretty invested. Um, the last time I played was with the Lakeview High School jazz band um, at a at a senior luncheon. It's been a few years since then, and my thought is: look, a, a really demanding job, two young kids, a wonderful wife. I've got more than enough on my plate right now, but I absolutely expect to pick it back up again if and when things slow down a little bit. So from Northwestern, you go on to Harvard Law, which reminds me of that infamous movie with John Houseman, The Paper Chase. Was mm -hmm. it that competitive or in, if it was, how did you survive? It wasn't as bad, I must say, as, as uh, how it was in the 50s, 60s and 70s. I watched that, that movie like many other um, aspiring law students. And um, while I wouldn't say it was as enjoyable as maybe Legally Blonde made things out to be. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did have a good time. It was challenging. Don't get me wrong. You have some of the best and brightest legal minds from across the country really wanting to cut their teeth. That's the first opportunity to really demonstrate your passion for law and developing expertise. And it's, it's well, I think cutthroat would be too strong. It was definitely a competitive environment, but what was so helpful for me from the jump was that my then girlfriend, now wife, Caitlin, uh, was, agreed to move out there with me. And so that was so incredibly grounding as I had really challenging days and um, studying for exams and, and being very busy with the law review. I could go home and leave all of that stuff at the door for a little while and um, just continue connecting with her and having a life that um, didn't always include the law, which was really helpful and part of why I think I was able to uh, keep my head on my shoulders okay. Did you work and clerk for a federal judge or any judge as so many Harvard grads do? I did. So I worked for Judge Ann Claire Williams on the Seventh Circuit. She's now retired, but she was the first black judge um, on the Seventh Circuit and was and continues to be a terrific mentor. She now... Um, has retired and, and continues to do really impactful work at the law firm of Jones Day. But that was uh, maybe the best year uh, professionally that I've ever had, just being able day to day to work to 
ensure that justice is done for anyone who comes through the court's doors. It was appellate work. So you're looking at um, decisions that were made by trial judges, but we just had such a wide variety of cases. You had contract cases that were very interesting. You had issues around the death penalty that came up from time to time. And one of my favorite cases to work on um, was uh, a federal case involving sex discrimination and um, essentially the entire court coming together to declare that um, discrimination on the basis of a person's sexual orientation is still discrimination on the basis of sex that is um, illegal under federal law. And it was that case, I think, paired with another that ultimately went up to the Supreme Court where they made the same declaration. So it was a, a real mix of cases, but just absolutely fascinating. And we were able to do great work. You worked as a civil rights attorney at the Illinois Attorney General's office focused on police reform, immigration, health care and workers rights. That is the wonderful background that you brought to the city council with 15 of 50 members who have either left already or not running for reelection. Why are you running for reelection when so many others are running for the hills? Well, I, the reasons that I ran for the first time in 2019, um, or, or the sadly the the challenges have have only grown uh, largely on account of the pandemic. So really taking, for example, a more holistic approach to public safety. When I was at the attorney general's office, I, I helped write the federal consent decree. So I came in with uh, a, a deep background um, and a lot of knowledge around soup to nuts, the sort of improvements that need to be happening around training and supervision, accountability, officer wellness. Um, affordability has and continues to be a huge challenge in my neck of the woods. Um, we've lost a lot of our more affordably priced homes, whether it's deconversions of two and three flats into single family homes or teardowns. And then, of course, uh, wanting to make sure that you're just making government more efficient, more effective um, and impactful um, on a day to day basis for constituents. So that work continues. And while many of the my colleagues who you mentioned, have been serving our city for years, if not decades. Uh, I'm still relatively new. And I think that there's a lot uh, of additional work to do on the issues that matter most to Chicagoans. Why do you think we have this mass exodus? Is it generational with a lot of the elders reaching the maximum on, the, on their pensions? Or is it more than that? Uh, Tom Tunney has said the city council is not a great place to work these days. I would say it's probably all of the above, but a different mix, depending on which individual you're talking to. I mean, some have been on city council for decades um, and they've worked with three different mayors and maybe they had a particular approach and affinity for how stuff was done 20 or 30 years ago and things have changed. And maybe that's just not as appealing for folks. Others, it might be more of a personal issue. I know um, my, my former colleague, Michelle Smith, said, I've got family obligations. And I, I, I think that's something that a number of folks have thought about. Sue Garza has mentioned that um, publicly as well. I think others, like so many folks outside of government, um, have been challenged in so many ways on account of the pandemic. So just like you've seen in other sectors, the great resignation and just lots of, of movement, I think you have folks who have said, these last several years have been some of the most challenging of my life and uh it's time to move on to something else personally or professionally um 
So I, I think those are things that really resonate with everybody, but different folks might list different ones as, as the biggest reason why. You believe the city council should be independent and transparent. Has the city council been that independent voice under Mayor Lightfoot? Lots of aldermen don't think so. They want to pick their own committee chairman. They want to have their own independent council to counter dubious rulings from the chair by the mayor. They want to have a better funded and better staffed financial analysis office, which has pretty, pretty much been a paper tiger since it was created. You recently had the guts to introduce an ordinance proposing that you be elevated from vice chair of the city council's ethics committee to chairman to replace Michelle Smith, who you mentioned. Um, the mayor doesn't want to give up that power. She wants to maintain the longstanding tradition of allowing the mayor to dictate city council chairs who determine what gets on the agenda, what gets voted on and when, abdicating a power that is rightfully theirs. State law says the city council reorganizes itself. The BGA, BGA has sided with you, so is Joe Ferguson, the former IG. What do you think and why did you have the guts to stand up that way and do you think you have a chance to pull this off? When I came in 2019 uh, with a new mayor and a quarter of the council that was new, I felt that voters were declaring at that time that they wanted us to turn to a new page in Chicago's history. And part of that new page would involve city council putting away its rubber stamp and taking its legislative responsibilities seriously. Um, so many folks were deeply frustrated with the parking meter deal, the fact that half of our city's mental health clinics were shuttered. Our, our pensions were badly underfunded and something that continues to get a lot of uh, attention and rightfully so the fact that almost all of our 400,000 lead service lines have yet to be replaced. And so I think for Chicago government to operate in the ways that our residents need and deserve, you need a city council to act as an empowered and independent and energized legislative body. Um, our, our city's a big one it's, and it's a diverse one. We have 2.7 million people. That's more than 15 states in the country. Um, and as you mentioned, committee chairs play such a critical role. They decide which legislation is going to move forward to a vote, what issues are going to receive a public hearing, and then what matters committee staff are going to spend their time on. And for me, as I looked at the ethics committee, I was really fortunate when Michelle Smith was chairing it, she, she brought me in from day one. We worked closely with one another. And so I view there being a number of outstanding issues that need to be addressed. Things like nonprofit lobbying, um, uh, uh, putting together an aldermanic handbook because we're gonna have at least a, a quarter of the council that's new. And there was not a very, um, uh, I think, well-constructed uh, onboarding process for a job that's incredibly, incredibly important. And then even things like holding hearings and briefings and even introducing legislation around the IG reports, the inspector general reports that we've come to view is so critical, both with Joe Ferguson and more recently with Deborah Witzberg. And so my thought is by talking with my colleagues on that committee, uh, continuing to talk with them, other members of, of city council, the mayor's office and the mayor herself, um, this is a, a, a job that I believe I'm qualified for. Um, I have good ideas as to how to continue moving things forward. And the city is not well served when you have important committees like this one or the education committee without a chair for months at a time. Right. But it's not just about this committee. Isn't it about all of them? 
and her, and 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 taking back the power that is rightfully yours under state law it's important that folks recognize as you mentioned the power that city council has we have by design, a strong city council model. And that changed significantly under the first mayor daily. A lot of folks, for example, don't know that city council, like many other legislative bodies at city level, the state level, the federal level, used to take the lead on writing the budget for the city. And the first mayor daily took that away. Things were reorganized. Um, but I just bring that up because things in government in Chicago, of course, are never static. They're always dynamic. And I think we constantly need to be thinking about are things designed and operating in a way that reflects the needs of our constituents. And when I think about all of the issues that folks bring to my office and me directly on a daily basis, weekly, we're talking with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of residents via email, via phone, folks just walking in. We are that most direct line to government at any level. And so to be able to take those issues and not simply address them in a one-off way, but say, hey, we're going to step back and say, we've got to redesign, we've got to improve some of these departments so it doesn't take a year for your trees to be trimmed, so that potholes are filled as a matter of course, that with regard to all the flooding that we're having, um, that we have more green alleys and more permeable um, uh, structures more generally. And so I do think that as we are continuing to work to modernize city government, that city council itself needs to be modernized. And part of that is folks recognizing um, the power that they do have as legislators. That's one of the critical um, responsibilities that they have. And in order to do that effectively work well with one another, with the mayor's office and our departments and our residents, I do think that city council members need to have more conversations and make more decisions about who's going to chair all of these important committees. And so do you think you'll have the votes for this? I think it's, it's where I'm on a good path, but I want to make sure that I'm continuing to have thoughtful conversations with colleagues, with the mayor's office, with the mayor herself about um, uh, what I would like to do with this committee. I think that we've, been doing a great job you, of that. Are you just focusing on your part and your committee, the one you want, or are you talking about, you're really talking about the whole of it and the city council taking back this power, right? So my resolution is simply about my committee. We have right. an education committee that doesn't have a chair. The environmental protection committee is going to be without a chair. So once Alderman Cardenas leaves for the board of review, um, but as I mentioned a few minutes ago, coming in in 2019, I think that folks were already wanting city council to be more independent. There were so many decisions that were being made that folks felt, hey, this is this, this is not the way that, that government should be operating. And so going into a new term, I very much expect that with all the new members in, with all of the new committee chairs that are gonna be coming in, um, that we're gonna have more conversations because at the end of the day, like we, we as you mentioned, we ourselves are voting on who these chairs are. So to me, it stands to reason that you're talking with one another saying, how are you going to, what, what are your priorities as housing chair? because Harry Osterman stepping down. What are your priorities? What do you want to do as a zoning chair? Tom Tunney stepping down. Same thing with the workforce and Sue Garza. And so those are conversations that, to be clear, they already happen. I mean, you'll know better than I in 2019 with Anthony Beal and Scott Wagaspack and Tom Tunney, there were lots of public and private conversations about how this was going to be structured. So I actually, 
I think that there's more of this happening in terms of city council members uh, playing a more active role in deciding who chairs are than, than, than some folks might be aware. But I do think that we need to be doing more of that, especially once the new term starts next year. How would you describe the mayor's relationship with the city council? It's been rather contentious from the very beginning. So it's, it's, it's an important question. It's also one where I don't come in with experience working with prior mayors. So when some folks say it's better or worse uh, than prior administrations, I can't really comment on that. I've just been doing this for three and a half years. I think for me, I've worked to make sure that I've got open lines of communication with the mayor, with folks on her team, and with departments. I recognize that I and she came in with uh, a mandate to do things differently. Um, and that definitely um, can upset the apple cart. That, that's, there are a lot of people within and outside of city council, but still within government who are accustomed to things being done a different way. And I think that um, many types of change that have been brought are new. But nevertheless, I think what folks want to make sure they're always seeing is that we're working collaboratively with one another. We're never going to agree on anything, everything, but people don't want to see us pointing fingers at one another, especially as we deal with critical issues around public safety and affordability and infrastructure. They want to know that, hey, hash it out, make sure that you're kicking the tires on everything. But at the end of the day, you just got to get the job done. And so that's what I'm going to continue to be focused on. You led the charge to declare a climate emergency in Chicago. You voted for funding to plant the 75,000 new trees and to expand the tree canopy. You also sponsored and passed legislation to expand electric vehicle infrastructure. Demands for a full-blown Department of Environment, more funding for the homeless and mental health and hiring incentives to reverse a record pace of police retirements have been the pressure points in these budget hearings. Why do we need a full-blown Department of Environment to replace the one that Emanuel disbanded as opposed to this six-person office that the mayor is creating within her burgeoning mayor's office? Mm -hmm. Because the challenges that we're facing on the environmental and sustainability front can't be addressed by six people alone. It can't be addressed by a sustainability office. We need uh, a, a full-blown Department of the Environment that helps us address the growing climate crisis. When we've had record rainfalls, record heat, um, when we're uh, seeing significant lakefront erosion, these are not things that just a small handful of folks can deal with. We really need to have a large, accountable um, department to shepherd things like expanding our EV charging infrastructure. Most of the new EVs that are sold, if not all, within the next 10 years or so are going to be um, electric. And so where are folks going to charge, especially for people who park on the street, which is uh, probably a majority of Chicagoans right now? What are we going to do to make sure that we actually are decarbonizing our, 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 our building stock, especially our large downtown buildings? What are we going to do when it comes to um, maintaining and expanding our tree canopy? The list goes on and on and on. And I just think at the end of the day, 
you need to consolidate that. You need a quarterback in the Department of the Environment to help ensure that everything we've already declared that we're going to do and things that are are in the queue right now, that we do that successfully. Because it's one thing to put out a plan with lots of goals, as you know better than I, it's a much different one to ensure that 10 or 15 years out, we're doing what we said. Because we had, for example, a really ambitious climate action plan that was to conclude in 2020. We're kind of starting from scratch with that. And I think we really lost a lot of steam um, in 2011, 2012, and the years after that, after the Department of the Environment was disbanded. So just like we've brought back the Department of Housing and we've, we, we're continuing to staff that up and they're doing terrific work, I think we can do the exact same thing when it comes to the Department of the Environment. Another campaign promise the mayor made and is not delivered on is her promise to create a dedicated funding source to help solve affordable housing crisis and reduce homelessness. She promised to raise the real estate transfer tax on high-end home sales, has not done it. Why do we need what you call the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance? For for a number of reasons. One, And what is it? Yeah, so homelessness is a problem that like we're already at a crisis level and um, if things don't get better, it we already have um, about 66,000 people um, uh, across the city who are homeless. Um, some institutions think that number could increase by 50% in the coming years if we don't take bold action. And um, with the possibility of a looming recession um, that could have a, a, an even more detrimental impact on affordability right now, um, we need dedicated sources of funding to do things like rapid rehousing um, for people who are homeless, people who um, maybe are victims of domestic violence and need to get out and, and be somewhere safely that day or the next day. We also need permanent supportive housing for individuals who have chronic mental health issues, maybe co-occurring substance abuse issues. We can look to cities like Houston that have done terrific work around this and say, part of what we need to do is get out from the bottom or something like 20 or 25th when it comes to per capita spending on homelessness related um, causes, we can do a better job. And this is a proposal that's been around since before I got into office that is is very, very popular. And also the fact that the, the fair tax has failed, we have relatively few options to bring in revenue that reflects folks' ability to contribute to the city. And so when you talk about one of the few options here to for say that $20 million sale at the St. Regis, uh, formerly the Radisson Blue Aqua, um, that they are paying the same rate as someone who sells a bungalow for $250,000. That makes absolutely no sense to me. And so when you're talking about addressing our affordability crisis while also being more responsible with our city's finances, that's one that has broad support across city government. We just need to get it done. You also have been a huge proponent of making Chicago a more bike and pedestrian friendly city, which means tilting the balance away from cars and toward mass transit so the streets can be freed up for bikes and pedestrians. The mayor has a plan, a pre-election plan, to add 25 miles of concrete protected bike lanes by December 31st and convert all bike lanes protected by plastic posts to concrete separations by, uh, separation by the end of 2023 if she's reelected. Is that good enough? No, but it's it, we're on the right path there. Um, we need to make sure that when we're talking about bike lanes that we have 
a, a really a, a grid of concrete protected bike lanes because at the end of the day no one's thinking okay well i'll just go, use the several block stretch of protected bike lanes and then it's not going to be protected and no one thinks like that you just think how can i safely get from point a to point b and this isn't just like theory sounds like a good idea in and around my ward we've had multiple people hit and killed um and at the end of the day we need safe streets for everybody we need safe streets for drivers we need safe streets for bicyclists we need safe streets for pedestrians so if there's someone who um right very much in my community was hit and killed um when when she was sandwiched between as a three-year-old sandwiched between uh on that truck that was exactly exactly she was sandwiched between a comment truck that was illegally parked in the bike lane and then a semi was driving on Leland when it really should have been on a more major street like Lawrence or Irving Park, she was hit and killed. This is not an exception. This is a norm. We've dealt with dozens of incidents like this just this year across the city, the state, the country. We're seeing record numbers of folks being hit and killed by cars, whether they're pedestrians or on on bikes. So this is part of what improving public safety across the city means. But it's also how we improve environmental sustainability, right? Getting folks out of their vehicles, making sure that when it can be done safely, they have the opportunity to walk, bike, take public transit. Um, I, I, I hear a lot from folks when, especially now that the worst of the pandemic, knock on what is in the rear viewer, they're getting back to traveling. They're going to places like New York, they're visiting um, cities in other parts of the world. They don't come back and say, oh, it was so great. I was stuck in a car for 45 minutes going from one side to the next. They talk about how wonderful it was to walk around a beautiful city like Florence or Rome. And so what do some of those cities do? What have they done um, in recent decades? Make sure that it's very safe for folks to walk and bike um, in and around downtown areas. And I think for Chicago to continue to be the world-class city that it is and that it aspires to be, this is gonna be part of that. Before we let you go, let's talk about these two things in your wheelhouse. That is police reform and your background in helping to write the consent decree. How do you think Lightfoot and Brown, Superintendent, Police Superintendent David Brown are doing in complying with the consent decree. They got a multi-year extension. They, uh, Brown raised eyebrows and created headlines by firing Bob Boyk, the head of constitutional policing, who was summoned to Brown's office and summarily fired in apparent retaliation after sending an email criticizing Brown's decision to move 46 officers under Boyk's supervision to the Bureau of Patrol as part of a larger reorganization. Did that uh, did that show that they don't tolerate dissent over there? Or what what did that trouble you? I think when you're looking at how we've done around reforms involving public safety and specifically the consent decree, we've certainly had some improvements in recent years based on where we started. And that's something that happens in any big city that does something like this. You saw it in LA, you saw it in Seattle the first year or two is going to be bad and then you're slowly ramping up it gets better and better and better bob boyd did an important job he helped um really pick up the pace of the improvements that we were seeing but let's 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 make sure that we don't lose the forest for the trees just because the compliance rate is increasing doesn't mean everything is rosy um we need to make sure that we're looking at what's what are the outstanding areas where compliance is needed and a lot of it is the more significant structural issues what we're doing a better job with is low-hanging fruit 
where we continue to struggle with is modernizing our, our systems so that they're not so siloed from a technology standpoint. Um, a training and accountability continue to need lots and lots of improvement. And so it's so important that when we're shining a spotlight on our, our need for improved public safety, that you're cultivating an environment where people feel comfortable telling you what their informed opinion is. Um, and even if you disagree, um, that's the sort of environment that you always want to foster as a leader. So I was really concerned when um, Bob was fired. I've spoken with his predecessor several times, Tina Scahill, but at the end of the day, we'll see as the new reports come out around compliance, how are we faring? And at the end of the day, we know that one of the things we're going to continue to need to do is investing in this Office of Constitutional Policing and Reform. And so we don't need to be taking folks out of there. We need to be putting more folks in to do critical work around training and supervision, and especially officer mental health and wellness. When I was working on the consent decree, we had only three full-time mental health professionals for a, 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 a department that had at the time over 14,000. Uh, sworn and unsworn personnel. That clearly sent the message that the department at that time was not taking mental health and wellness seriously. Since then, we've improved, but we're still not where we need to be. We still have a lot of outstanding vacancies for the 22 positions um, that are in the current year's budget. And because we continue to see so many deaths by suicide at an alarming rate in CPD, we know that more needs to be done. And I mean, you could also say even outside of policing generally, like mental health is just something that we need to do a much better job with at the city. And finally, on the issue of public safety, which is first and foremost in the minds of voters, what do you think needs to be done? We are still short almost 2,000 officers since the time when Lightfoot took office. She and uh, Superintendent Brown are, are touting a 20 and 18% reduction in shootings and homicides, respectful, respectively, but it's still up 30% from when she took office. What do you think? Public safety improvements are a real mixed bag. It is so important that we continue to see a decline in shootings and in homicides, but robberies are up 20%. Um, carjackings were up significantly. They're starting to level out a little bit, but that's still happening at a rate that's almost four times what it was pre-pandemic. So we've got a lot of work to do, but it isn't just looking at the stats. When you're talking with folks day in and day out who just don't feel as safe as they want to, um, feel that relative to two years ago, 20 years ago, that their community isn't as safe um, now as it was then, uh, you don't want to just talk about stats. You really want to engage folks in a thoughtful way. And that's why the new um, Civilian Oversight Board is so important in that for the first time this coming February, you can directly elect district council members who will be that liaison between the community and public safety stakeholders. Because now more than over, folks are plugged into Nextdoor and Citizen App and other websites that provide them information about uh, crimes that are happening around their community or even in other parts of the city, um, close to loved ones or workplaces. So it's not just saying, hey, our stats are down, job done. Um, I don't hear anybody saying that. And that's just that's just not the case. We need to do a much better job of getting to a place where we are like New York and L.A., which even though they've been challenged during the pandemic, their homicide and gun violence clearance rates are much better than ours. Um, the, we have more homicides than the two of those cities combined, even though both of them are larger than us. So we still have a ways to go. 
Matt Martin, thank you so much for joining us. You're a fascinating guy. We didn't even get a get to talk about your public financing of, uh, of uh, political campaigns uh, ordinance, and we'll have to have you back. And uh, we will see you all next week. Thanks, Brian. Take care. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.